everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman as we are in between the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays. Hope that you had a great Thanksgiving and are having a good run up to the Advent season as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus and anticipate the second coming of Jesus. And thank you for your ongoing listenership. We uh, appreciate the consistent feedback that we get from you guys and the dialogue that this has become with folks all around the nation. Uh, speaking of feedback we receive, I want to say thank you to Chris, who asked us to consistently put in front of you the listener mixed history of thievery at Claire's Boutique. So just bringing it back up again today as we start off a holiday shopping season. That's right. It's Places always, you're not going. Always relevant. It's always t- relevant to every episode. It really is. Do. And uh, Andrew's past as a rave DJ in Wildcat. Today we're going to look at, uh, speaking of, we're going to look at discernment, and um, we're going to look at specifically discernment when it comes to things going on around us, all the information that's coming our way. We consistently get asked about current events and news, scandals, things like this, and mostly we aren't qualified to answer these questions. Uh, Neither of us are political scientists or sociologists or historians. And yet, I think there's a a significant and relevant intersection between this podcast and our content when it comes to the ideas shaping society and and obviously the bombardment of ideas that are coming at us through various media. So, Drew, why don't you get us kicked off today talking about discernment when it comes to all of these messages and signals that are coming at us? If you're looking today for our hot take on some current event, you'll be disappointed, but I do think we can help you with a few ideas of how do you become a a more discerning and more careful reader and maybe read between the lines on some of what you do take in. Um, There's a few dynamics that we've referenced a lot, but we'll pull them back in that I think are happening culturally. So there's general cultural change, and that's influencing people's attitudes and posture towards a lot of different topics. Then on top of that, there's this idea of truth is power. As a result of truth is power, I think there's a lot more of an maybe overt emphasis on controlling narratives. And then lastly, there's rapidly changing language. So we're going to break these down, uh, and this is more just some some things to consider as you are reading, and then we'll zoom out from there and make some suggestions of, of what you can do to maybe help counteract some of this kind of stuff. Yeah, to, to jump out on that first point, that uh, the general cultural change that's been kind of swirling around us, and we've hit this from a lot of different angles over the past year, so this is just going to be a, a brief treatment. But when we talk about discernment in terms of all the signals that are coming at us, one of the underlying shifts and changes that has made this really difficult for our generation is this kind of movement towards postmodernism. And we use that term very broadly. We've talked about that term in the past that we really, at the core, we don't really believe anybody is truly postmodern, but basically this general belief that objective truth doesn't exist out there. And so when it comes to all the signals in the media and the reporting that's coming our way, if there's an underlying belief that there is no objective truth, because objectivity and journalistic reporting used to be the standard. And now with so many angles and slants and and a general public belief that the truth can't be known because there is no objectivity, that makes discernment of the messages that we receive very challenging. 
just to jump in there, Mick, um, this idea of objectivity, you know, I think on the one hand, there's probably a very healthy awareness that in past generations where there was a lot of optimism that we could know things definitively. And so what you would see, you know, the danger of that is when people are writing science or history or journalism, they're stating it as though it's gospel truth. Like these things are absolutely true. I am an objective outside observer who's able to step outside of a situation, analyze it, and then make a definitive verdict. And so that, you know, that can actually be very negative. So I think there's some of this trend that's positive. There's maybe a little bit more humility and awareness that no one really can ever have that perspective. But I, I would say the flip side of that is uh, the downside of that is if you don't believe that that's even possible, there's less of an emphasis of even trying. And so, you know, in my judgment, I think journalism, even in last, you know, 20 years, you can see a real shift where uh, it seems like because people are aware you can never fully be objective, they're not trying as hard to be objective and a, and a little bit more um, willing to just let their own biases take over uh, rather than uh, at least seeking that middle ground. And of course, that's a very broad statement, and that's speaking to journalism only. And, you know, there's a lot of other areas where we consume information. And uh, I know there's good people and good institutions even that, that try to preserve that. But I think if you could do some kind of like meta-analysis, you'd probably find that to be true. A byproduct of this, you know, our second point here is controlling the narrative is the byproduct of truth is power. That's a mouthful of a sentence. So when we believe that truth is a means of power, what we then seek to do is to develop and control and enforce a narrative because that's a means of preserving power. And this is based on the understanding that everyone lives within a narrative and a belief system. And I think that's a really important, like I fully agree with that. I don't think it's possible to not. I think we have to live with some kind of background story that gives shape to our lives. And that then is based upon belief systems, and that's going to influence our morals, that's going to influence our social environment. And, and we need this. Like, that's a good thing to give shape and meaning to our world. And so that reality is not a bad thing, and, and you're not going to get away from that. So I think if somebody heard this and said, you know, we're losing objectivity, we need to stop trying to live within a, a narrative and be purely rational people, you're really missing the point of, of my concern, because I don't think that's—I I think there's a lot of truth to that. I fully believe in objective truth, but I, I don't think through some kind of journalistic method or scientific inquiry that you can get there all the way. Um, I think ultimately there's there has to be something that anchors your objectivity, and I think as a, as a believer, I'm going to look to the revelation of God in Jesus by the Spirit. So I, I think, you know, that the idea of narrative is important, and I think the humility of recognizing can we ever fully be objective is also important, but what I have seen happen is this turn as this, you know, as there's more of an awareness of how people live and um, how uh, whoever gets to shape the narrative, just what that does as far as power and control goes, um, what I've seen happen is that there seems to be a lot more of an intensity in media of enforcing certain narratives and living within a certain narrative. And so let me read out, I, I took a stab at this of two narratives I think you see a lot in news that are going to roughly represent political ideologies, but um, I'm not suggesting these are the only ones. So I think on the one side, you know, there's a narrative that I, that it seems like is out there where we are living in this epic struggle against systemic forms of injustice that extend to race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, and ecological damage. So this is one, one narrative that people live within, and any institution with power is complicit, you know, that is, that is not actively resisting these things is complicit. And so you reframe events that are happening. So when something happens in the world, there's this impulse to stack that into that narrative and to take and, and reshape maybe events that are happening within that narrative. And, and, you know, I think there could be somebody who's just purely manipulative doing that, but I think by and large, a lot of people are true believers. 
And so they, they have bought into it. They're not, maybe there are subversive people doing that, but I think a lot of times it's people that they really believe this and it's so much a part of their, their background belief that they may not even be fully self-aware that this is their entire narrative that they're living within. And so when, when new things happen, when a newsworthy event happens, when they notice something, their narrative preconditions them to notice certain things and to not notice other things. Okay, so that's on one side. Let me give you a, a different narrative that I see out there is that we are in a similarly epic struggle against these kind of subversive agents in society that are seeking to impose a totalitarian ideology and erode the institutions that have made the United States this beacon of freedom, prosperity, and peace. And so you see this other struggle where you've got these people that are trying to change our culture from the inside out. And, uh, you know, as a nation where we've had at one level, the greatest peace and prosperity and, you know, the world still looks to. And there's this story where there's this vanguard of people that are having to resist these change elements. And, you know, so again, that's a narrative where people live within. And then what they're doing is as, as stuff happens, they're taking these newsworthy events and these data points and they're they're stacking it within that narrative. And just like I would say to the other one, you know, I think there there could be somebody who's just purely cynical doing this. But I think by and large, there are true believers who are living within this narrative, who who believe it, and uh, it's so much a part of their background belief that they don't even know it's there. And so these are two narratives. There's probably a lot more that are out there. I think if we could travel to different countries, we'd find different narratives. Uh, but the point being is that these are in the water, and no matter at one level, no matter how objective you want to be, you're still going to live within this narrative. But then I think there is even a consciousness these days of people, maybe at one level, they have faith in their narrative to the point where they almost think they're doing good by fully embracing this and um, letting this control the way that they disseminate information. Yeah. So what I hear you saying, Drew, is not we're not here today to evaluate the legitimacy of these narratives. What we're bringing attention to is the fact that we all have these stories that play out in our minds. And going back to about this time last year, we did an, uh, an episode on the stages of adult cognitive development. And I'm not going to rehash that here. You can go back and listen to that episode. But in that episode, we talked about the fact that all of us have these lenses through which we look at the world. And when we talk about discernment, what we're talking about is being conscious of the lens we are looking through. And at times, it is right to not just look through your lens, but to look at your lens and to evaluate the legitimacy of the lens that we're looking through, or at least to be conscious of the fact that there are narratives that have shaped us, that we don't live in an ideological vacuum, but we are byproducts of the culture around us. And so I think a first step in employing, and we'll get to this a little bit more here in a little bit and talk about some, how do we, how do we respond to these various challenges that are all related to this idea of discernment. Uh, but I think one of them here with, with regard to these various narratives is just first and foremost to have the humility to realize that that we have them and to be mature enough and secure enough at times to evaluate the story by which we are living. That's a great point, Mick. And, and when there is a narrative and when it's written by a true believer, you'll find it always to be very compelling. And typically there's enough out there in the world uh, you know, there's enough truth in all of these narratives that when somebody does a good job doing their homework and they string it all together, you're going to read an article and it's going to sound great. But we have to be able to take a step back and, and be a little bit more conscious of the narrative it's coming from. And um, as we get to in a little bit, I, I'm always really intrigued by the things that cut across narratives, you know, the inconvenient truths for all the different narratives that are out there that start to poke holes in it. And, and I have a few ways that I can recommend 
um, for all of us to look at. And I think, you know, the more I study some of these complicated events in society, uh, I'm just left uh, scratching my head. You know, the narratives don't quite fit always. And, uh, you know, I still have my opinions and Mick, you have yours and we probably don't agree on all of ours. But uh, hopefully what that can help us to do is if we can take a step back to at least have more humility and more of an openness of saying maybe our narrative doesn't fully explain everything and maybe maybe there's information out there that we don't know what to do with and, and it just helps i think that self-awareness helps a lot even if anything in the, our ability to relate to one another with more grace and more humility so our third point i want to call your attention to shifting language and i think this is significant so if truth is considered relative and narrative is everything then language quickly becomes co-opted in support of different narratives and, and different callings. And so I see this everywhere right now. And I think this is super important if you're gonna be somebody who is, is reading a lot and especially is keeping up with current events. So not just historical reading, but current events type reading. You gotta pay very close attention to how words are being used because words meaning are subtly being shifted. And, and I think a pretty deliberate attempt, um, these words are being shifted and that actually changes what's being said even though you know, maybe a plain reading of what's being said would indicate one thing. It's actually referencing something else. And so I see this all the time with various psychological terms. I don't want to get into that today. That probably be, needs to be its own thing. But here's, here's an example I found that stood out to me. It was an editorial in the USA Today. It said this, extremists are using sports to discriminate against trans athletes. Speaking of um, transgender sports participation and should a biological male be allowed to identify as a female and participate in female sports. And we've talked about that some, but rather than the topic, I just want to call your attention to the language. It's amazing to me, the shift. First of all, the word extremist, which typically is used to refer to a violent fringe in society, you know, normally representing a very small minority that is seeking to overthrow and impose a new standard. Well, in this case, there's a Gallup survey, 62% of Americans would be against a biological male self-identifying as a female and participating in women's sports. And so 62% of Americans are extremists all of a sudden based on this, on this opinion headline. Now, I want to be careful. This was an opinion, not an actual news article, but I still thought it was noteworthy the way that language was being used. Secondly, the, the word discrimination implies and extremism implies that somebody is trying to change a standard and actively block something. But if you actually look at it, what's really happening here is the people who are resisting this, they're holding the standard that's always been there, and they're resisting change occurring to them rather than trying to pull something away. So really what this author is doing is they are representing a minority position, and they are attempting to co-opt language for a pretty sweeping societal change that's going to have a lot of effect and second-order effect for something that's not very popular but they're using evocative language to try to plead their case. So rather than even arguing their case, what they're really doing is using language to try to preempt somebody's ability to argue their case because nobody wants to be an extremist and nobody wants to discriminate. So if you can make those words stick, then you've actually gone a long way to winning your argument without actually having to support your argument with any other kind of data. And that's just one example. So you could actually take that article. I thought about trying to rewrite the title and saying extremists are using trans sport to discriminate against women. You could almost literally take the entire article headline, just reformat the words and and make the point from the other side, maybe even more accurately as far as how those words have been historically used. And so this happens all the time. It's not just something that happens on the political left. It happens also on the, the political right. And so, you know, just a few words I notice that whenever I see them, I always pause because I want to figure out what a person is saying. 
So whether it's justice, injustice, freedom, patriot, traitor, racism, discrimination, um, supremacy, those are all words that have a historical range of meaning, you know, and I think an appropriate historical range of meaning. But I'm finding those words um, in different articles when I read them and I, and I try to really analyze the point that's being made. I realize that those words have been given, been given a new range of meaning outside of their historical context. And I think you got to really pay attention to that. It doesn't mean their point is bad. It just means you can't just take those words at face value anymore. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges to this is the pace at which all this is happening, right? So changes in language historically have taken decades, if not centuries, to permeate a society. But now these changes are happening in a matter of years, maybe even months and weeks in terms of the redefinition of certain words. There's a couple different articles I've come across recently that I found interesting. One by David Brooks writing an opinion article in the New York Times who tackles this. It's behind a paywall, though, so hard to read. There's another one in Tablet Magazine called The Language of Privilege by Nicholas Claremont. And what they're arguing in all these instances is that rapidly changing language is becoming a sign of elite education. And so in the academic institutions, the, the language is evolving really quickly. And what that does is that actually gains you a sense of social status. And I think you can see this in the different tribal camps of America, is they're quickly developing their own language. And when people use that language, they're signaling that they're, they're involved with a certain tribe. And that language has to be consistently changing because what that's doing is it's reinforcing who's, who has this kind of commodity of they've been educated appropriately within their own party group or their own ideological camp. Uh, you know, and so it becomes almost this bewildering just trying to stay on top of the latest language so that you can be up to date with the group that you're trying to signal your allegiance to. You know, it becomes its own thing. And um, in a way, it, it's actually designed to keep outsiders out. Uh, you know, so I think a, a great example of this would be if, if you wanted to work with poverty mitigation, there's a whole range of vocabulary and phrases that even a year ago or two years ago were not out there that today you would have to know them and know know how to speak that language. Otherwise, you'd be looked down upon if that was something you wanted to do. But ironically, uh, the people you're trying to reach, uh, hopefully the poor and the marginalized, don't have access to that same language. And so, uh, you know, it, it creates all kinds of challenges um, in our ability to function as a society, but at the root of it is this issue of rapidly changing language. And I would say for anybody who's going to consume media, um, you're probably not going to be able to stay on top of it, especially if there's multiple different narratives out there and each of them have their own vocabulary. You'd have to spend your whole day just staying on top of language. But I think what we can do if we want to become good consumers of information is at least flag it and ask yourself the question, is this word being used in its common way? Or has this word been given a new range of meaning? And if so, how does that influence my perspective of what's being written? Yeah, to give another example to that effect, I saw a document recently that was issued by the APA to physicians, and it's two pages of new terminology with how to speak to gender issues in a clinical setting. And I was I read a, a comment by a physician. He was just talking about the challenge to keep up with these, you know, these evolving changes. And if it's challenging for medical doctors and psychologists and pediatricians to keep up with this, how much more so the general public. So I think we just say this to say if you've felt some kind of vertigo from all the, the cultural swirl, you're you're not alone. And again, it's it'd be impossible to stay on top of the wave with every shift in the winds. But I think what we're trying to get at here is just an awareness. Become aware, evaluate language through maybe a little bit more of a critical lens, not critical spirit again, but just a critical thinking lens. Don't just assume that we can take everything at face value. 
Something you can do if you find yourself being really impacted by something you read, then a, a great little trick is can you restate what was being said in common language and avoid all buzzwords from the right, from the left, from whatever other group. Just restate the argument in your own words using plain language. I think a great sign of intelligence is not somebody who can spout the latest jargon and buzzwords, but somebody who can take an article of buzzwords and turn it into plain language and just tell me what's being said. And I think what you'll find is the arguments become a lot more pedestrian at that point and maybe not quite as compelling and more open to different forms of critique. Is pedestrian, is that plain language? Uh, you know what? Thank you, Mick, for pointing that out. Yeah, I think we could certainly be accused of not using plain language. So fair, fair point for those who want to criticize ideology. All right, so how do we respond? Let me give you a few ideas. Um, first of all, this is probably a life response in all areas, including your interpersonal relationships, but avoid jumping to immediate judgments. It is okay. Let me restate this. It is okay. In fact, it's very healthy to not have an opinion on a current event or if you do have an opinion, to hold it lightly. There is this expectation that we are supposed to be able to analyze something and have a definitive conclusion, and then in some circles to actually publish something about it or say something about it in, in some kind of broad setting. And I, I will say the few times in my life where I have done that, I almost always regret it because I, I find that the world is more complicated than I realize, and I have to ask myself, is this actually my fight. Is this something where I am capable of knowing and capable of having enough information where my voice is helping rather than hurting? And that's something even on this podcast we've tried to do is um, not allow ourselves to get sucked in too much. And you'll notice that very rarely, maybe we've done it a couple of times, but very rarely are we going to jump in and um, start addressing you know, the latest thing that happened last week. And that's by design because I just don't think that trend is healthy. And typically our desire to have this thorough analysis and come to a conclusion really fast, I think is actually not a very healthy one because I think it circumvents probably a better reflective process of learning and discovery. And, and I think in a lot of situations, we just have to accept the reality that we're never going to fully know and that we're probably not going to be qualified to make some kind of definitive judgment. And now the balance to that is I think we should try to be informed, especially if you're going to exercise your right to vote or do other things and participate in the public square. You need to do what you can to be informed. So you do that responsibly, but I think you also need to do that with humility of recognizing you're probably not going to be able to be the expert on this, and that's just okay. Yeah, and if you must publish or post a comment or an opinion, to do so without the dogmatism and, and to avoid superlatives. I think a, a scripture for the Christians who are listening to this episode, I think a scripture that all of us should have plastered to our computer screens and our phones is Proverbs 18.2 which says a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Amen. <laughs> Selah. So a couple of things that I, I, I think also are just red flags for me is when I read something that's mainly this super evocative anecdotal story, then I just take everything with a grain of salt. And so I've had, unfortunately, had the privilege of being in a lot of different church environments going all the way back to my childhood where, you know, I, I would see stuff be published or written, but I was privy to inside information and the discrepancy between the story that was published online between my own experience of having lived through something was astounding. And so, you know, that's just my limit, limited chair, but I'm going to make that assumption, you know, when somebody posts this huge story about how this company did something bad to them or whatever the case may be, it very well could have happened. But I think you also have to acknowledge that maybe it didn't happen and maybe there's more to that story and maybe that person's telling it only from their vantage point, et cetera. You know, the same thing goes for any anecdotal story, you know, there'll, there'll be these impact stories of a new law impacting somebody. 
almost all of them, you could probably find an anecdotal story on the other side of that new law that impacts them. And it's just, life is complex, it's messy, it's complicated. And that's just a red flag for me. Second, this is probably a cynical side of me, maybe this needs to be confession, but I, I generally expect that by the time information gets to me, it's probably been filtered through a bunch of PR firms and the information that's hitting, you know, hitting the internet has probably been leaked very intentionally. There was probably some strategy section, you know, a couple of weeks ago in some New York office that mapped out when they were going to selectively drip the information to feed the narrative or whatever. And uh, it doesn't, I'm not saying that's a conspiracy theory. I'm saying that more is just recognizing most of the information that we're getting is probably has some PR element to it that is getting to us on purpose and the timing of it has purpose. And, you know, there, there is still quality journalism out there. There are, are still times where you'll find these like citizen reporters that just hold on to something and they, they dig really deep. And it's kind of this, a little bit more of a um, authentic grasping for truth. But I also am careful that just recognizing, you know, there's a lot, a lot of money out there to, to manage truth and how it gets out into the society. Yeah, I think another helpful framework is to evaluate or to at least keep in mind how people are incentivized. So whether that's, you know, the news media or even a, you know, a religious institution, just what are the incentives that are driving the discourse? What are the incentives that are driving the information that's coming at us? So if the first point is to avoid jumping to immediate judgments, I think the second one would be in in terms of, again, just discernment to filter and evaluate the information that's coming at us is to read widely. And this is something I know Drew and I, you know, we both value highly. We try to find, you know, a variety of news sources. I I don't actually read the news a ton, but I do stay generally up to date and I try to listen to and read sources from a, a variety of perspectives, from right, left, center. And actually I find that for me, a lot of times it's helpful to read international news because I find that international news has a different perspective on what's going on. In the States, whether it's Reuters, the BBC, The Economist, and, and again, all of those are going to have a slant as well from the right, from the left, you, you start to discern some vague element of truth by evaluating perspectives from a variety of viewpoints. Yeah, I'd say as a general rule, avoid, avoid leaning too much on junk journalism. And what I mean by that is if whatever your news source is, has about the same number of articles about celebrities as it does actual news events, it's probably not a very trustworthy news source. Or if a lot of their articles are are basically them retelling conversations that took place on Twitter, once again, that's not good news and that's not trustworthy news. If, uh, you know, if it's a, a news agency that also is publishing quizzes and the latest gossip, you know, like those are tabloids and I, I treat them as tabloids. It doesn't mean they're lying to me, but I also am not going to really trust their reporting. So yeah, like you, Mick, I like finding international news sources. They're probably biased in their own country, but when they analyze American news, they just seem to have a little bit less dog in the fight. I like finding news sources on both sides of the political aisle. Um, so for me, uh, the National Review has been really helpful for a more conservative perspective, the Atlantic uh, for a more liberal perspective. I disagree with a lot of what I read, but I, I just find that at least they're trying. And if you can look at both of them, you can start to see opposing viewpoints and do some of your own analysis. I also like diving into less common news sources. So, you know, if I read an article, or if I read something online and they reference an article that's more of a scholarly article, I always like going back to that. And if, if it's something that I'm really interested in, just to see what they find. And then I'm fascinated by demographics um, polling. 
And so I'll look at different pollsters or other groups like Gallup or uh, 538 or these different groups that are out there just to dive into polling data. Because what you start to find is, you know, you have these very tightly controlled narratives. But then when you actually look at real people, what they believe and how they vote, you start to realize most of those narratives collapse pretty fast. And so that can be helpful as well. Or if they don't collapse, they are relegated to the fringes. And you have what one analyst calls the the exhausted middle, which is the vast majority of Americans who are actually just mildly right or mildly left, you know, the fringes, the the four, five, six percent at either end of the spectrum that that are typically dominating the narratives. And that's a super important point is we we have to recognize that a lot of the stuff that's being pushed is not representative of most people. It, you know, they they represent the fringe. I had this realization years ago that Twitter as a medium, the only people that are on Twitter who actively post on Twitter are academics, journalists, and crazy people. And sometimes they're all three the same person. But that's the entire medium. Like I don't have a single I don't think I have a single person that I know well that enjoys mixing it up on Twitter or posting about Twitter. But it, it looms really large when it comes to political conversation and news. That's where that crowd spends all day is they're always on Twitter. But they are not at all representative of most people. And I would venture to guess that the ideas on Twitter probably represent the fringes and are pretty far removed from the masses. And that's why every time there's an election or polling data, people are always so surprised because they're living in these bubbles of people who, who more or less agree with them, but they're on the poles of our society. They're not in the middle. And so just be careful to not allow yourself to get sucked into that world. Or if you are sucked into that world, I would caution you that that world is not representative of the real world, and you need to be aware of that. And you know, I think the same thing can go for academic settings, that the discourse that happens in a lot of universities is just not reflective of what goes on. And so for everybody, I bless you with the gift of having a lot of people in your life that aren't in those circles. Even if you are an academic, I would challenge you to intentionally cultivate relationships with people who just have common concerns and, and get a feel for what they're thinking about. And, and I think that'll help you to stay grounded. But let's end with this, this last thought. We talked about narrative and truth. Uh, I want to pull it back to the theme of this podcast. This is why the narrative of Scripture and, and the tradition of our faith becomes so important. You're going to live within a narrative, so we're going to need to be very conscious and careful to cultivate that, that story for us. And regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, if your time is spent on the political spectrum and you're consuming a lot of media and you're not spending a, a, a significant amount of time in Scripture, in the church, in, in the ministry of the kingdom, then what's going to happen is over time, the media's narrative is going to become yours. And I see this with a lot of people where they get so caught up in this world that they start reinterpreting their Christian faith based on their political narrative rather than reinterpreting their political narrative based on their Christian faith. And that's going to take proactivity and time. And so even as we can give you some tips for how to discern as you read the news, my, my greatest tip is let's really be grounded in our faith and that's something that you'll take into any time you're online. Yeah, and that really deals with this whole idea of dominant discourses that emerge in a society that has lost some sense of objective truth. If there's nothing outside, and we've talked about this at length, but if there's nothing outside of ourselves to arbitrate truth, then we're left with these kind of power struggles and these power vacuums that really the loudest or the strongest voice wins. And so we can extricate ourselves from that struggle by being more deeply rooted in an eternal truth, at least in our opinion, the the Judeo-Christian worldview, the, the truth of the scriptures to be to deeply imbibe those on a daily basis, to be formed biblically 
so that we can engage society from a perspective that has grounding in in an objective truth that's outside the self that can arbitrate. Now, now of course, there's still tremendous amount of complexity, but we at least have an anchoring point, a starting point to go back to the scriptures as Christ followers. So that wraps up this episode. As always, thank you for the honor of your time. Drew, thank you for putting together the content for today, and we will catch you next week on Ideology. Against these subversive, we are in a similarly... <laughs> Struggle Buzz on it's Ideology like, uh, Podcast. Oh, uh, that Dr. Seuss, Fox and Socks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.